0: to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 42, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Stuart Preston. He's a podcaster, stand-up comedian, author of the booklet The Grief Trip, and so much more. Thank you so much, Stuart, for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. So um, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't able to meet meet you at the Northern Virginia national touring show about psychedelics and grief called The Grief Trip. But how how did that go there in, in VA?
1: Yeah, it went pretty well. And uh, yeah, thanks for calling a National Touring. I'm not sure if I would put it on, on that level quite yet. But whenever I travel, I do try to do a show. It's called The Stone Dape Show. And yeah, like you mentioned, it's about, you know, my, my working with my grief to heal with my grief and using psychedelics as, as part of that. And the show went really well. It was a strange show for me because I had a lot of friends and family there because I'm from the area. So normally I have a room full of strangers. And at this time I had a room full of people who... Uh, all knew uh, you know, a lot of my history and a lot of my background. But overall, it was a really great experience.
0: Got it. So where exactly did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Woodbridge.
0: Oh, okay. So you really are a local. Got it.
1: Yeah, okay. I really, uh, well, sort of. I've been gone longer than I was there. But uh, I'm amazed that, you know, I've been back a few times. I came back for a comedy festival a few years ago, and I've been back to see family. And I'm always amazed at how it it all looks the same.
0: Yeah, people normally say the opposite of that, but I guess maybe Woodbridge is stuck in some sort of time freeze.
1: Yeah, well, it's all DC because I landed, you know, I landed it. I still call it National Airport. And, you know what I mean? The 95, 495, 395, it's all a great big tangled mess. And I guess they've made some changes to it, but it basically, you know, it all looks the same. Yeah, there's some parkways Prince William County Parkway, Fairfax Parkway. I mean, it's not like the whole place is frozen in time. And maybe. I live in the Phoenix area now and Phoenix changes so much. It's growing so fast out here that maybe I'm just used to that kind of change. So maybe, maybe just a matter of perspective.
0: Sure. So were you a comedian before you got started with all this psychedelic grief stuff?
1: Yeah, because uh, I started doing comedy about eight, eight and a half years ago and I was, uh, you know, Mainly corporate comedy, clean comedy, going, going to trade associations and holiday parties and, you know, any kind of a corporate function, going to retirement communities, things like that and doing, you know, 30, 45 minutes of clean comedy for them. And, um, I ended up, I ended up pivoting my comedy because I lost my son seven years ago. And when I lost Ian, you know, everything changed. The, my reality shifted everything changed and at the time I had not ever tried any drugs at all, much less psychedelics. but I had I had read that psychedelics can put one into a dreamlike state and so I thought, well maybe I'll try these and I'll, and I'll dream about Ian have you know maybe like a lucid dream and so I did all my research and, and did my journey and, and that's when I discovered kind of the, the power of psychedelics to help us uh, heal and transform our lives. So that's when I pivoted. Starting writing some comedy material around that experience and then quickly found that it turned into more of a talk. So now it's like a 45 minute to an hour talk followed by a short Q&A session.
0: Got it. And when you do these talks, are there normal normally guests with you or is it just you up there?
1: Oh, well, the first part is just me. And then the second part for the Q&A. And I started doing the Q&A because my very first show three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, at the end of it, I left time for people to ask questions because I thought they might, but they had a ton of questions and they had questions that I didn't have answers to, but there were some psychedelic people in the audience that would raise their hand and say, can I answer that? And I said, yeah, go for it. And then they would answer it. So after that, I started bringing up a panel. I try to get two or three other, quote, psychonauts up there on the stage with me to field questions. We, uh, We make it clear that we're not therapists. We're not experts. We're not, you know, we don't study anything. We're just people who have experiences. So we can answer questions about experiences, but we can't answer any questions about specific treatments or anything like that. And and we're very careful about um, harm reduction, you know, making sure that we're not up here just making it sound like, oh, let's all get high. You know, it's not, it's not about that at all. But yeah, I usually have a little panel with me.
0: Yeah. So I read and really enjoyed the the book that you wrote, The Grief Trip. And it seems like Something you state right away that's important is is this kind of caveat that the kind of change that can take place through a psychedelic experience is not necessarily one that gets rid of some of these powerful negative emotions or, or unpleasant emotions like grief, but maybe just enlarges the space in which you have to like hold these experiences or emotions or, or it lets you um, heal, sort of not despite these events or experiences, but kind of with them. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple couple caveats.
1: Um, harm reduction is a big one. Is, is psychedelics are not for everybody. In fact, they are not for some people. So it's important that everybody does their research and talks to the right people because it's it's a bad idea to, to listen to a, a single podcast or whatever and say I'm going to do this and run out and and try it and just have everything go wrong because you haven't done the research. So. That's the first big caveat is it's not for everybody. I don't I don't even recommend it. Right. Even in my show, I stand there and say, I'm not telling you guys to do these drugs because uh, one of my spiritual uh, teachers, Ron Das likes to use an old Japanese phrase um, that a mountain has one peak, but there are many paths to the top. And I, I thoroughly believe, and I I have a friend who's a psychologist and, and he and I will have lunch or breakfast and talk about these concepts. And I feel like, i use psychedelics i meditate some people might play tennis do crochet bike ride kayak hike i mean i think there's a number of things that can put our mind into a mindless state which they call mindfulness ironically they can put you into that mindfulness state and i think that induces healing with with any kind of a, a traumatic event so yeah that's the first caveat and the second caveat as you mentioned is it's not a matter of just chomping down a bag of mushrooms and, and then running around and go, okay, I'm fixed. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. I'm also not, I, you know, I don't trumpet the, the, the quote integration part that you see a lot of people in the community, you know, really focusing on is doing formal integration. I'm also not necessarily a huge fan of that. I think it can be definitely helpful for some people, but I think that doing some formal work like that can also overwrite some of the lessons and force somebody to try to come up with stuff that really hasn't percolated to the top. But the really good integration coaches and specialists out there, and I've got a handful of them that I recommend, they know how to do that properly. But somebody that does it improperly can actually, I think, just my opinion, it hasn't been studied. Integration hasn't been studied, right? But it's, uh, you know, just got to make sure you're not forcing too much and trying too hard on the one hand but also don't expect anything to change without any effort on the other hand
0: any effort post-trip you mean
1: yeah and the, th- and the thing is and i'll get into arguments with people o- about this and a lot of times people in my audience will ask a question around this and sometimes i just smile and look at one of my panelists and i'm like you feel this question um, because there's a couple things that are that are out there that i don't necessarily believe in and i'm not saying that they're wrong i just i'm kind of skeptical but Integration is one of them. I think there's way too many false integration experts out there that I think could actually be hurting people. Uh, the other one is uh, microdosing. I think there's not a lot of evidence that microdosing is actually benefiting other than with a, as a placebo. However, the placebo works, right? So if you're doing it and you're, you're getting at least as good a as a placebo, then why not do it, right? Because you're, you're getting results out of it. But yeah, and I, there's been times in my life that I mentioned in the book where one psychedelic experience, one journey brings me the benefit of a year or two of psychoanalysis, of psychotherapy. And it didn't really take any work. You know, it's like a great big epiphany. Anybody out there who's been through psychoanalysis or psychotherapy knows what happens. You sit there with the, the doctor and he or she talks to you and then eventually you're a blubbering mess. And you've had your epiphany and you're like, oh, wow, I really needed to understand this, right? It lead you to something that's really, really profound and important. I think that psychedelics can lead you there in six hours. And there's not a lot of work. I've had a couple really big life lessons that came to me through a psychedelic journey and I didn't feel like I had to turn around and and do something actively to make sure that it helped change my life. It just changed my life for the fact of knowing it, of being exposed to what was Kind of inside of me without knowing it before.
0: Sure. Um, so before we get too far away from terms that maybe need a little bit of defining, can you just tell us what is integration?
1: Yeah, and I'm not, and I don't know if I'm qualified to give you a good one. You guys can look it up. But I- integration is is the work. So when you go through a psychedelic journey, one tends to get to get messages, images, allegories, lessons, just straight up information. Uh, Some people might call it a download, but whatever it is that one experiences, sometimes you come out of it and sometimes people are confused and like, I have no idea what just happened, but they can tell something did because they feel change happening inside. They can feel friction or they got a very clear message or, you know, whatever it is. They, maybe they had a great time, maybe they had a horrible time, whatever it is, but integration is the process of um, processing that and putting any lessons that came into practice in life. So. One of my big lessons that I got out of an ayahuasca journey was that I am not powerless. Um, The spirit of ayahuasca La Madre taught me that I am not powerless to change things in my life. And that alone was greatly beneficial. And maybe I just got lucky that it, it instantly made things easier and better for me. It didn't fix me. You know what I mean? I'm still not like this perfect awakened, you know, you know, person without any mental issues but knowing that I'm not powerless that I can change things in my life was really really profound but I didn't really need to do work around it because it 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 just came to me and I noticed how I'm moving through my life in a way that is much different than it was before I got that I got that lesson but that's what integration is 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 helping people through a post journey experience to help them understand what happened and put that stuff into practice
0: yeah so um, maybe we can dig in a little more, if you don't mind, in what you're saying about the effect of this realization on you. So pre the experience with the ayahuasca and feeling sort of uh, less powerful and, and then sort of post that, what, what do you mean a little bit about what changed in you?
1: Well... Um, you know, the background is, and I'm not, I'm not any, any different and I'm not crying about my, my past. Right. I mean, we all have stuff that we went through, but just going through life, I, you know, started early with my parents' divorce. I took it harder than I thought I did. You know, as an eight year old kid, I thought, Oh, this is just what it is. Cause kids are so resilient, but it turns out it had a pretty big effect, you know, losing, losing, uh, my parents, essentially my dad moving away, um, having some other troubles in my life, uh, losing a business. Ending up in the military when I didn't want to be in the military. That's a long story. Um, You know, and then losing my son. And it just one thing after another, I just had this feeling of no matter what I did in life, no matter how hard I tried, um, life was going to come by and snatch it away. And so I just felt powerless. I was like, well, screw it. There's nothing I can do about this. So why even try? And then La Madre, you know, Ayahuasca, very, very visual allegorical type of experience where she built this, she came to me in my, in my ceremony, right there in front of me, sat there, built this little contraption in front of me, held it up to me and said, get rid of it. And as soon as she said, get rid of it, I purged and purging is something that happens in an ayahuasca ceremony. It's a somatic, a body, uh, the body pushing out trauma feelings emotions blocks whatever it is it's, it's just the situation of the body somatically doing this work and so i threw up <clears throat> i purged and i felt instantly you know better i mean we all feel better after we throw up right whether it's ayahuasca or not it's just you feel better and then ayahuasca starts taking on new a new form and things start moving and and i didn't know what i didn't know what had happened you know i knew she had done this and i didn't know why i didn't know what and then it came to me on my way home from that ceremony i was like oh my gosh she helped me throw away my feeling of powerlessness. And again, it wasn't like suddenly I was able to go and accomplish everything in life and I was suddenly happy and, and you know, doing all these amazing things. It was just a point of thorn out of my psychological foot. You know what I mean? It was just like, hey, this has been weighing on you for a very long time. And without it, you're going to be able to find your next message in life. You're going to be able to continue doing your work um, which I continue to do. And so that was really, really profound. Sometimes when I talk about this, I I'd start to tear up because it was such a big experience for me. The whole, the whole ceremony was big. Everything, uh, the ceremonies before that leading up to it were big. And so when that, that moment happened, it was really, uh, like I said, profound for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It seems to be a case of letting go of like things that aren't serving you anymore.
1: Yeah. And I think that the feeling of powerlessness was, um, maybe even not so much, just not serving me, right. Like drinking beer does not serve me. Right. But being powerless, that is holding me back. That's actively hurting me. Yeah. And so that was, a. Uh, that was a big one. And I, like I said, I've been through psychotherapy. I had three or four years of psychotherapy and I know how that works and I absolutely love it. And I recommend it to everybody. I wish the government would just push it out and say, everybody gets psychotherapy because Mm -hmm. it's really, really huge and important. But again, you know, in six hours of an ayahuasca ceremony, or you can count all the ceremonies leading up to it. You know, if you want to just say it was 40 hours, whatever, whatever it was, was as profound as a year or two of the psychotherapy, but it's just a matter of really, Uncovering something, exposing it, identifying it, and going, "Oh, I didn't know that I was I was doing this to myself."
0: Yeah. Well, here's a question for you: Do you think that the um, the stuff that comes up in a a ceremony or a trip, how how related would you say those things are to like your immediate um, life circumstances versus maybe something that happened six months ago or a year ago or that's been happening a long time, like? in the same way that like when we dream at night, it seems like our dreams have a lot to do with what happened like the day of, or maybe in the past couple of days. How do you think like the, the ceremonies or the trips relate sort of temporally to like our life circumstances? So a couple things, um,
1: temporally during an experience like this, I don't feel like there is even time. So time kind of, evaporates away there. There's no yesterday or tomorrow. There's just this right now, which is the way a lot of us try to live, right? Live in the moment. And just, you know, like Ram Dass would say, the title of his book, be here now, which I've whittled down now to just be. Um, and so when, when you're living in the moment, um, I think that's what's happening during a trip. I think time, especially with um, ayahuasca, but really with all of them, time melts away. And so yes, I am everything that, that I've experienced up until now and more. And I am my worries and my concerns and my plans and my aspirations. I'm all, I'm, I'm in the past, I'm in the future, but it's all really just right here in this moment. And so I think that all the messages that come in are probably uh, just related to the whole or related to the here and now, because that's all that we have. And I think that's part of what's so helpful about it is, is you're dealing with this uh, mindful state this state of the monkey mind having evaporated time having evaporated and we're able to basically exist and play and be in this uh, state of pure consciousness which i feel like is probably one of the 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 main valuable valuable points of going through this kind of a thing is actually being able to be in that state because i think that state is tremendously healing
0: Mm -hmm. um so in your book which a lot of it as you talked about is about grief and healing from grief you write that at some point you realize that it's okay to be happy following a big loss i imagine that this is a message that might be hard to hear for someone who's recently gone through something difficult but perhaps we don't give the grieving sort of enough bandwidth to have like the full range of human emotions including the positive ones even if something terrible has just recently happened to them so yeah like how do you how do you enforce this message or 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 get it across to people
1: yeah, that's a good question, Josh. I mean, it's a—it's uh, impossible to get purposely get any message across to anybody who's dealing with any, any kind of, of a trauma and especially grief. Uh, I say especially because I'm familiar with it. I don't really mean to, to compare it to other traumas. So getting that message across is really, I think it's like everything else we're talking about. Like the, the, the big value of your podcast is you're putting things out there that are important and that are vital. And we're talking about them out loud. And when we talk about them out loud, other people will talk about it. Um, so I think that's all we can do. I can't, I can't really help somebody understand anything. They have to be ready to hear it, but hopefully when I'm, when we're talking about it, they're ready to hear it and they can understand that. Yeah. Hey, um, I think we have all the emotions going on inside of us almost all the time. I I think the, you know, the analogy I make is a guitar, guitar strings that all six strings represent the spectrum of emotions all the way from the low string of utter despair and grief and sadness to the, the highest string on the guitar, which might be elation and happiness and then everything in between and they're all available and any one of those things can be plucked. They can be plucked at the same time, but I think it is important it's important to understand that, that we can be happy because the grief is never going to go away, right? There's, there's no, that's why the title of the book is healing with grief, right? It's not from it. When I didn't make that up, I got that um, from somebody else. I think maybe Suzanne Giesman. I don't want to attribute the wrong person, but there's no, there's no moving on from grief, you can move forward. There's no getting away. It's going to be there for the rest of your life. You know? So the practical thing to say to somebody is you're going to be sad for the rest of your life. You might as well find a way to be happy, right? Cause the grief mm. is always going to be there. And the truth is the happiness is there too. You just got to find it. And I think, I think the trick for me and everybody has their own path up this mountain, but the trick for me is, um, to let go of the emotional attachment to the physical presence of somebody you lost. And you still get to carry on the the memories and the love and the spirit, whatever that means to you. And so your, your person is still here with you just in a different form. But once I think once I was able to know that Ian wasn't going to walk through the door, that he wasn't going to light up a room, that he wasn't going to, I'm not going to hear his laugh again, that all those different things. And once I understood that, then I was able to start working on different things and and find my happiness and ring the happiness string.
0: Nice. Yeah. When I had a, I had the other grief expert on the podcast a while back and she was talking about the mental maps that we make of the people in our lives and how, you know, those people, when they're alive, alive, they sort of exist in two places, right? They exist, you know, physically, but they also, exist like in our hearts or our minds. And so they're still here just sort of in a different area.
1: Yeah. Was that Dr. Francis O'Connor? Yeah. Yeah. Her book, The Grieving Brain is uh, an outstanding book. I mean, it's very, so my, my friend who's a psychologist, you know, I spoke to his class and during it, you know, he recommended her book and he gave me another couple other books and I got her book. And because of my consciousness podcast, I'm very interested in how the brain works and how consciousness works. And um, yeah, anybody who's grieving. I think it's uh, it's a it's a very insightful book on this. And when I finished reading it, I, I actually emailed her and I said, "Hey, have you looked at psychedelics and grief? Because you know the neuroplasticity you're talking about in terms of working with grief and rebuilding these maps. It seems to me like 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 uh, psychedelics really uh, aid that and induce it even." And she said nothing's been done yet, but they're 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 looking at it. So I think it's very possible. If we're lucky, we'll see maybe a study or two coming out. Um, of uh, psychedelics, neuroplasticity, and rebuilding those maps that you're talking about.
0: So you said something uh, that made me think about, you know, we were talking about stigma and secrets and and shame and stuff like that. And I had, I had someone on the podcast a while ago who had a lot of shame from the secrecy of things in her childhood and. In your book, you talk about, um, I mean, the exact quote is families don't like to talk about suicide or drug overdose. Same thing, really. They are sad and in shock and don't realize they're making those things worse by keeping it a secret. They keep the stigma of suicide going, which keeps those suffering quiet and in danger. So I guess i my question is, when, when if ever, do you think secrecy is appropriate? And two, how do you think talking about this stuff can help people who are, you know, having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation? Or, or how does it connect, like, our conversation and the just sort of general destigmatization of these things help those that population? Um, so what was the first part? The first one is, when do you think secrecy is a good idea?
1: Well, when do I think secrecy... I don't know, man. My gut reaction is to say never. But mm. I, I guess... Um, only when only when protecting um, confidential information, right? So if there was something that uh, somebody in my life asked me not to share, it's like, hey, Stuart, you're going on a podcast. Please don't blurt this out in front of everybody. Then it would be appropriate for me to keep that a secret. But I think I, – I don't know, man. I think that I get irritated, and I see it all the time. You see some athlete, some entertainer, or somebody die young – unexpectedly, chances are real that they died by suicide or a drug overdose. And you always see their family coming out and say, we just want our privacy. Don't talk to us. And so nobody knows. And wh- what they're doing is is basically saying we are ashamed, right? We're ashamed that our loved one died in this way. And when they're saying that they're ashamed, that is stigmatizing that Right. You're stigmatizing mental health issues. And so people with mental health issues, they won't get help as long as there's a stigma. They won't they won't go to the doctor because they don't want their health insurance to know. They don't want people at work to know. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to get made fun of with their friends and their family or when they go to work. There's like there's like 15 different things that somebody thinks to themselves. Oh, I can't go get help because this is going to happen if I do it. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's that shame around it that we are creating as a, I think as a society, we're creating this shame around getting help for mental health issues. So somebody who's feeling suicidal is, is they're already going through really, really bad mental health issues. Their brain is lying to them. Their brain is telling them that they're worthless, that they're, they suck, that life is always going to be sad, that there's no hope. And to have your brain telling you that your brain is just an organ that spits out thoughts, right? It's not, it's not even real, any more real than your pancreas spitting out insulin. And so it's, it's the kind of thing that we take our brains too seriously. But if you're stuck inside your ego and your brain, it's real. And your brain is telling you, you know, your life is terrible. And the only way you're going to get out of this is by dying. And so some people die by suicide. Some people overdose and they don't get help because we're all like, oh, we can't talk about this. Because it's a it's a shameful thing. And people say the worst things, right? They'll say the worst things to each other to me about suicide. And as long as people say those things, we're gonna perpetuate this these stigmas. But the best way to get rid of the stigmas, in my opinion, and I'm just one person, is to just openly talk about it. You know, when when Ian died, and I I wasn't thinking clearly, right? That first week after he died. My ears were ringing. It's like a bomb went off right in front of me. And I'm just wandering around um, aimlessly. My mind didn't work. I couldn't hear anything. Nothing was working. And um, a local uh, blog, a tech blog, I was going to write up an article on him because he had worked for their owners, their parent company. And they were going to write up an article on him and all this. And the person interviewing me said, hey, do you want me to mention how he died? And I was just like, yeah, of course. And at the time I wasn't thinking we need to say how he died. He, he died by suicide. We need to say that out loud. I wasn't thinking like I'm going to be an activist. I was just, I was just confused. Like in your question, when's it good to be secret in my brain? I'm like, it's never a great time to be secret. So it just spit out. as like he died by suicide, put it in the article. And I didn't feel any shame. All I knew is that my boy was struggling and he wasn't able to get the help he needed. And I, I want people to get the help they need. And I want, I want the rest of us to stand, stand there cheering. You know, I want us to all say, yeah, look at this person getting help. Let's all get help. We all should be going to get help. And it should be something that's applauded and not something that ends up getting stigmatized or made fun of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's probably changing, but we don't see like when someone beats cancer, there's like a big parade and photos. And it's like, it's the most amazing thing. And these people are heroes. The people who beat cancer are heroes, but you don't see that same sort of accolation or uh, celebration for people who, you know, get past, you know, some sort of part in their life when they're really down.
1: Yeah. And it takes, it takes somebody famous, not me. I'm not famous, right? Nobody knows me. Um, but it takes somebody like a comedian, like, like Neil Brennan out there talking about it or Hannah Gadsby, you know, talking about this or Anderson Cooper coming out and talking. you know, and when people come out and actually people that we all know come out and talk about it, that, that absolutely helps. And that we can all understand it. But the the thing the rest of us can do is stop covering it up, you know, and and just have, it's how I end my show. I don't want to give away everything, right? But it's, I end my show with please leave here tonight and go home and talk, talk in the car on the way home, talk at work tomorrow, talk at school, talk at your family dinner, just talk about the same things that we talked about today. Because the more we all talk about it, the the better we're going to do. And you're right. It is getting better you know, there's the series on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind with Michael Pollack. And there's his book, How to Change Your Mind. Um, I get people, because I'm very open about this. So even in my business networking groups where I'm promoting my two businesses so I can make money, they all know that I'm a user of psychedelics. So these business people throughout the months will send me articles. So when CNN comes out with something about psilocybin mushrooms, they send it to me and say, hey, did you see this? And so that's a big change. You know what I mean? In the past, I think that people wouldn't talk openly about it and they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to let me know that they had seen something like that. But so again, we all can influence our own little sphere, right? Whatever it is. I I don't have a show like Anderson Cooper, so I'm not reaching millions of people, but I reached, you know, tens of people here and then tens of people at Burning Man and then tens of people in the DC area. And so when you, when you do little things, then hopefully those people go home and start talking and eventually Somebody is going to start hearing the message that, like, hey, I suffer from that, and it just is. I need to go get some help. I can go get a ketamine treatment. I can work with a psychiatrist. I can go to group therapy. You know, whatever it is, I, there's options for me to find hope. You know, in a place and a time when I, I felt hopeless. So, that is the goal.
0: For sure. Yeah, I think one thing that hangs us up is probably how closely we all identify with our minds and brains. So, like, if I've got pancreatic cancer, I don't think, like, oh, I'm such an asshole. Like, I'm so terrible at my right. cancer. My pancreas has cancer. But if my mind is telling me I'm terrible and I should kill myself, it feels much more like Josh than the pancreas feels like Josh.
1: Yeah. You know what? That's a good point. I don't really know if I know much about it because, lucky for me, I haven't been diagnosed. I've had some family members uh, battle cancer and some of them died and some of them are really doing great. Um but you're right. I think a lot of times, um, they feel like it's an outside thing happening to them on the inside, you know, so they don't feel like, Oh, this is me causing this. You know, they feel like, yeah, this is happening to me, which is, I guess, you know, you make a good point. That's a, that's an important distinction.
0: Yeah. That's why we all need to listen to more Ram Dass so we can identify less yeah. with, uh, our minds.
1: Yes. Observe it. Don't be it.
0: Yeah, so I guess when you were in therapy, and I think I did some rough math because in the book you said, I think it was like two years, 20 grand or something like that. And I, I can't remember the numbers, but I did some math and I thought like, okay, he went weekly and it was about 200 <laughs> bucks a session. Did I get that?
1: Yeah, you know, you're pretty close. It, uh, My therapist, um, I consider to be one of the most important people in my life. You know, he he has since passed away, but you know, when I do my life inventory after I die, I'm going to be like, yeah, Dr. Melendez, that was one of the most important people in my life because he helped me deeply. And, and he was an amazing human being and just such a good therapist. And when I got to him, I wasn't making very much money at all. You know, and I said, hey, I can't afford your rate. You know, and he said, OK, you know, what can you afford? What can you pay? And I said this and this many times. And there were times I was doing it twice a week. Mm -hmm. You know, so it wasn't, and he wanted me there at least twice a week and to keep doing it. And yeah, it was around that range. And then my life started getting, getting better and I started making more money, you know, and he saw it, you know, then there came a time when he looked at me and said, okay, can you pay my fee now? You know, and I was like, oh yeah, I can pay your fee. Let's, let's do it. (laughs) And so I started paying his fee. So it wasn't necessarily one. Rate, You know what I mean? But yeah, you're very close on that. And it was, I think it was three or four years, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. It's some of the best money I've ever spent.
0: For sure. Some people call it rent for your head.
1: Rent for your head. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely an investment. You know, I, I definitely feel like, you know, I just took my car to the shop yesterday. It's actually Ian's car, right? We bought it from his estate. Because it's ah, uh, it was important to him. It's important to us. We want it in the family, so we still have his car. I drive it around. It's a stick, and uh, it it broke down yesterday for the first time it's ever needed any major service. And I get it serviced all the time because I want this thing to last forever. And it was six hundred sixty bucks, you know. and six hundred sixty bucks, I'm like, well, you know, for Ian's car, it is what it is. But I didn't feel happy. I don't feel happy. I'm going to go pick it up later today. I'm not going to be like, oh, here's here's my credit card. You know, this is great. But 40000 bucks, 30000 whatever it was, you know, I, I don't begrudge that whatsoever. And that's a lot of money. And I'm not a rich man, you know, but that's, that's a lot of money. And it was just so worth it.
0: For sure. So in the book, uh, you talk about the things that you should do if you do want to do a psychedelic and uh, the difference between set and setting. And I think you make a good distinction here between being ready and being like not scared. Because someone might think, oh, I can't do this thing today because I got really anxious this morning. But you tease that apart a little bit more and say that being ready is a little bit different from whatever sort of fleeting emotion you're having, maybe just before the trip or, or around it. Can you spell that out a little bit? Yeah, I think I think what
1: I'm looking at there is, you know, some people in the early days, I was the same way. As I'm researching all this stuff, you know, you read about set and setting, you know, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who became Ron Das. You know, they came out with the whole thing about set and setting. You got to be in the right mindset. And I even thought to myself, I was like, how could I ever be in the right mindset after losing my son? I'm going to be devastated for the rest of my life. How could I ever be in the right mindset? And like you're pointing out, it's not, it's not like, what mood are you in, or what you, what are you dealing with, your trauma, or else none of us would be doing this, right? I haven't yet, yet to meet one person, in the psychedelic community that's not dealing with trauma, and so it's, it's not like, you go into this and saying, oh, I have to be perfectly mentally healthy, but like you said, and I guess like I said, it's, uh, it's just a matter of being prepared, to go on this journey, and, and something could happen, you know what I mean? You could have a big blow up fight. And you're just in a really angry mood and it just shifts your mindset. And you're like, no, I'm not in the right mindset anymore. I had been, you know, um, meditating for two weeks and eating a better diet and exercising. And I did everything I needed to do. And then, you know, my spouse came in and wrecked my whole mindset. Well, I shouldn't blame them, right? You allowed them to wreck your whatever it is. And you're just like, yeah, I'm not in a, in a good mindset now to do the journey. And that's the time to say, OK, I'm not in the right mindset but it doesn't have to do with how life is going or what's going on in, inside of you and your psychology. It's, that's always going to be an issue, but the issue is just, is your mind ready? Are you ready? Is your heart ready to, to go into this journey and really allow it to take you where you need it to go? And so if you're ready for that, then, then you've got the right mindset, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're just going to keep jumping around a little bit wherever, wherever my questions. All right, take us. do it. But uh, yeah, so peyote is not something most people, myself included, know anything about. But it seems like it is something that you can do at some church, I guess, in New Mexico. Um, yeah,
1: it's in Arizona. It's the peyote way church. And they are right up next to legal. They they have been battling the United States of America for decades and basically, you know, if you read their story online, which I think is peyotewaychurch.org or peyoteway.org, beautiful, beautiful human beings. I mean, I just love these people. And they, they're they second generation, essentially. There's another, I can't remember the guy's name who started it, but uh, an amazing American hero, Native American, Ameri- you know, you know, he went to World War II, I think. And just an amazing human being that really started this whole thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's a church out here. It's, it's uh, right up next to legal. And it's a really amazing experience because I didn't know, I didn't know anything about it either, you know, and it's the, the compound in it is mescaline and, um, same thing you find in San Pedro cactus and, which is legal, right? It's growing in all the yards around here in Arizona. You could just go out and grab yourself the head off a torch and have yourself some mescaline. Um, but peyote is also very controversial because the, the native Americans have been using peyote ceremonially spiritually for millennia and what they don't want is for us you know to go wipe it all out to go oh hey i saw peyote on changing your mind i heard this this guy talking about it on josh's podcast let's go dig some up right yeah that's not really the answer so i think the best answer is these folks out here in arizona that have this church where they grow their own peyote and part of the whole spiritual aspect of it for me is going into the greenhouses and seeing all the different stages of peyotes in there, and all the things that they're doing with it is just a, a wonderful connection to nature, to the earth, and then to your own consciousness.
0: So, is the experience of being on peyote anything like the experience of being on mushrooms or ayahuasca, or is it completely different?
1: So, all of it is different for everybody. So, for me to tell okay. anybody what what it's like, um, I can just tell you my experience is. Uh, completely different and you know it's a it's a much different compound and what i equate it to so people are used to you know hearing about or experiencing ayahuasca and mushrooms with visuals and visions and images and big downloaded messages and i've heard of others having experiences like that with mescaline um but drinking a peyote tea it's and the people at the church really don't want to hear me say this, but it's, it's more of a, of a subtle experience. And there are times when I've done this three times and you go out in the desert by yourself with a, a jar of peyote tea and you sip it for six hours. And um, to me, it's the most disgusting stuff I've ever had in my entire life. It's really, really, really awful. And, and about four hours in, even before that two or three hours in my body's like, do not put any more of this in here. And it just convulses doesn't want it anymore. And they tell you not to throw up, right? They say, try to make it at least four hours, you know? And so sometimes I'll make it four or five hours and it's really brutal. But what it does is at the end of that time, it, that monkey brain we've been talking about and trying to get into that state of pure consciousness of mindlessness, mindfulness, that's what it does. And, and I'll sit out there on a cot or on a chair, just looking up at the, the Arizona sky and all the stars and maybe the moon and the coyotes and the owls and other critters running around. And it becomes this amazing moment of just absolute pure consciousness. And so it's, there's no downloads. You know what I mean? There's no image. I don't have an image of a demon popping up in front of my face like I did with mushrooms, right? La Madre isn't building me a little contraption and telling me to get rid of it. It's just my mind being completely in the moment, being here now, and from that, like Dr. O'Connor would talk about re, you know, neuroplasticity and rebuilding some of the, the maps inside of your, your mind, of the neurons, I think it's giving your brain, my, my hypothesis, is giving your brain the ability to work on some of that stuff, to calm down without having the interruptions of those intrusive thoughts that are constantly working, and contrary to what we might want to be working on. And so the peyote experience is uh, quite spiritual, quite amazing. But don't go into it, I don't think, expecting great visions. You know, because you see on TV that, you know, a movie, Native Americans, you know, they'll smoke something. Everybody thinks you smoke peyote, but you don't. You either eat it or you drink it. and But they see all these things on TV and then all the amazing images and the past ancestors and all that and expect all of this to come to come back up and maybe it can with with meditation and some other in, intentional work but in general it's just going to really help you get get your brain into the moment
0: mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the monkey mind because you've mentioned it a couple of times what would you say is your your relationship to the brain like do you feel a lot of its dribblings are sort of pure nonsense or Do you see it as helping you or as being sort of misguided sometimes and helpful other times? Or what's your general feeling towards that thing between your ears? Um, So just for me,
1: because I'm not an expert, I know I keep saying that. Um, I think so. First of all, I really appreciate my ego. You know, I had a really good mushroom journey one time that really helped me appreciate my ego. I think my ego can be damaging and I think it can hurt. I think it has a lot to do with my son's death. But my ego and the thoughts that come up and everything that's going on, I think my brain is doing its best. It can only do what I've trained it to do. It can only do what I've given it based on past experiences and what I've fed it from teachings. And so, yeah, I think I think that the monkey mind is doing its best to keep me alive, to keep me fed, to help me procreate. You know, I think there's all different things that my monkey mind is doing. And I, and I feel like in general, it is designed to help me survive. But sometimes surviving can mean negative things. It can mean a lot of fear and a lot of fear reactions and a lot of things going on in the central part of my brain that are like, you know, the fight or flight and the different things that can happen in there. So I think in general um it's really trying to look out for me but there are some things that I did to it earlier in life that probably screwed it up a little bit and so there are, every now and then it'll say things that are probably not the sweetest things it could say to me but in general I think it does want me to survive.
0: Mhm. Gotcha. So in the book uh this is on page 61 you spell out a range and this is for mushrooms between one and a half and two and a half grams that you wrote is quote you you describe it this way avoid this range and it can leave you in this weird in between space and just feels weird so i've never yeah i've never come across some kind of special prohibitive zone do you want to say a little bit more about that
1: yeah um and I, I, I heard it, I've heard that out there on the internet, on the, the Arrowids and the shroomeries and the reddits. And I, you know, I don't believe anything. I, I'm still pretty skeptical, but I had a couple journeys, like 2.2 grams or two grams that were just weird, you know, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like a bad trip. You know, I've had a couple bad trips, which were ended up being wonderful, but it ended up, they're just, uh, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like your car never being able to get out of second gear or whatever. You're you're going somewhere, but you're not quite getting there. And so it ends up being just this weird dark zone. So especially when somebody's brand new to this, I just kind of tell them to shy away from that. I mean, either either go all the way to like two point eight or three grams. Um, people do fine with three and a half grams, you know, their first time. It's a good significant dose. Or start off with what a good friend of mine calls a sparkly dose, you know, around one, one and a half grams. But try to avoid that, yeah, that middle that middle part in general. But, you know, somebody could be listening to that. And then later in life, they're like, well, I'm going to try this just to see, you know, and then they do it and have the most ma- amazing experience, you know, in the world. So do whatever you're feeling you're called to do, regardless of, of what I'm telling you. But that's just what I've seen and heard. And so I just typically recommend newbies just stay away from that, that weird middle dose.
0: Mm-hmm. So in those trips that you described as bad trips, were they bad and then became good during the trip or they're bad? And then in retrospect, they showed you things or taught you things that were then useful.
1: Um, they were bad throughout the whole thing. And I thought they were bad. So I tell people now, I say bad trips are like broccoli, right? They're, they're real. They suck, but they're good for you. And so when you go through and have a bad trip, it can be scary. It can be awful. Mine, mine was, you know, my big bad trip was scary and it was awful. And, but it, it was just as profound for me is that ayahuasca trip where I learned that I'm not powerless. You know, this, this bad trip taught me that I was also feeling suicidal. There's a big difference between feeling suicidal and acting on it. So there's, I don't want to sit here and try to garner sympathy for something I wasn't going through. But in my mind, I was feeling kind of worthless, you know, I was feeling like maybe I would just rather be dead. And there were just a lot of terrible emotions that were coming through it. But it came through as an allegory um, that the earth during my bad trip, the earth was actively electrocuting me, like exterminating me like a pest. And I was the earth was electrocuting me. And I thought, what is happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And then I realized, like, oh, the earth doesn't want me here anymore anymore. And I don't belong on the earth. And I always knew I didn't belong on the earth. I just don't belong here. And I need to be gone. You know, whatever this life is, it was a mistake. And I don't, I don't belong here. And then I came out of the whole experience and I was like, holy crap. You know, and it's just like opened up the fact that I thought all this because it's like with the ayahuasca journey, Lamadre talked to me, right? As she's building this contraption, she looks at me and she says, you don't really need more ayahuasca to be with me because I'm always with you and I'm always with you because I am you. And I really kind of feel like this, right? That these we're using these medicines and we go on these journeys, but it's us in our psyche and our brain and our soul. It's all that stuff going on this journey. So it's not like, so we're popping into some outside thing or whatever, or, you know, with DMT, maybe that's different. You know, maybe, maybe we are actually interfacing with uh, alien entities, but, with the rest of this, it's, I, I think it's just really our own psyche, and we're getting exposed to our own psyche, and we're, and we're seeing things. Some people like to talk about the shadow, and we're, we're seeing these different things. And so, when that happened, I think that you know I was I felt really bad, and I really felt like, why don't you want me here, Earth? And then when I got out of it, I realized no, it wasn't really the Earth doing that to me. It was that's how I feel, you know. It's, it's what I was looking at in my life, and and it, so it ended up having a pretty profound effect on me. And so when I hear people talk about bad trips, um, you know, it's like, it's just like, well, don't focus on necessarily how, how bad it was from an ego. Cause we all get very egoy with these trips, right? We all want to have ego death. We all want to see an entity. We all want to travel into space. We have and then people sit around and talk about this and it becomes this great big ego trip of like, my trip was bigger than yours. And so we can kind of get wrapped in that kind of a feeling with a with a bad trip we can feel like oh god i failed at psychedelics or this was so big and profound or whatever just stop wipe stop the judgments and stop trying to label stuff and just look and feel at what actually happened and i think it's possible that there's a really good possible that there's a really good lesson that was actually amidst that storm Mm -hmm. or several several lessons
0: for sure yeah i've had a couple of difficult trips one One which I don't really think I learned much from, and a second one where I think it really connected me with the Mm. person who was sitting with me. Right. In a way that became really productive. Interesting. Um, Yeah. So do you recommend, and I think you write this in the book, that you always have someone with you, or do you sometimes, I guess, as you become more experienced, kind of just... Lay down on your couch and kind of just do it yourself. Yeah,
1: I like and I recommend always having somebody nearby. Uh, they don't have to be with you. I don't like having anybody in the room with me. I don't want anybody affecting it. I don't want to look up and see somebody and then suddenly that that's part of my trip. You know, I, I don't want that. Obviously, with ayahuasca, you got a room full of people and they're all going through a whole lot of crap, right? So that's a different. That's a way different experience. But with mushrooms, much like peyote, it's a matter of. Having somebody nearby in case I freak out. I learned a lesson on Reddit from somebody out there. And if you're listening by chance, you know, thank you for this. And when doing a, a significant dose, I put little sticky notes around that say, relax, you're on drugs. Just mm-hmm. in case I start to lose my mind. And then I'm just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot I'm on, I'm on mushrooms. So I'm, I'm okay. Just go back and experience this. But it's good to have somebody around just in case. I mean, I, I, have never had a, a bad experience where I needed somebody to intervene. And most of the people I talked to also have not, even with a bad trip, they didn't need somebody to intervene. And, you know, a great guy to listen to and to talk to is uh, CJ Spotswood, the Entheo nurse. He's a psychiatric nurse. He wrote a book on microdosing. Um, and, you know, he educates other nurses on how to handle somebody who comes to the ER you know on psychedelics because it's it's really not you don't want to jam, put them into a room and jam needles into their arms you know what I mean you just got to kind of let them let them come down from it so that's why it's just harm reduction there's know your set your setting know your dose know your substance be prepared have somebody nearby you know if you're in a, a circle of ayahuasca people you know the the facilitator you know should have a first aid kit you know there there should be a, a, somebody responsible that could get somebody to the hospital if need be Although in all my trips, nobody's ever had anything we were close to that, but it's just nice to have it and to know that somebody responsible is uh, taking care of you. So that's, I guess that's my two cents. I like to have somebody nearby, but not, not sitting there next to me.
0: Mm-hmm. How, uh, I'm curious, um, how other members of your family have reacted to your journey? Like, are you a, are you an easier guy to be around these days? Or are you like, what's, what's it like yeah. for your family and friends?
1: Well, that's a, that's a complex answer. Um, my mom at first, you know, was worried, you know, her generation is, you know, these drugs are going to scramble your brain and get you addicted and you're going to die. And so, but she supported me, but I know she had her concerns because they came back to me through the the family grapevine, but she's okay with it now. My daughter, who's also grieving very hard, you know, for her brother, I I don't think, I don't want to speak for her, but I don't think she loved the changes just because you want your dad to be this consistent rock. You know, when you see him going through changes, I think it's kind of like, hey, what's going on here? This, it's uh, less stable. And yeah, I'm much more pleasant to be around. I'm, you know, I'm a nicer guy. I'm much more open-minded. I believe love connects all of us, which is a weird thing for me to say because I come from a very hard, judgmental, right-wing kind of existence. And so it's, it's weird for me to be in, the, in this space. Um, but I do think that I'm easier to be around. But at the same time, I've changed as a person. And, or not, you know, sometimes I just claim that that person was there all the time. I've just shed some layers that allowed that person to be in existence. Who knows? But that has not had the greatest effect on my marriage. We've diverged, you know, a little bit and the things that that we want and that are doing in life. And so that's had a a negative effect there. We both still love each other very much, but it's, you know, it's, it's having a, a negative effect on the marriage. So that's one thing to be aware of is, you know, going through this, there could be the real you could come out or it could change you, How, whatever your perspective is on all this. And that could affect your relationship with with other people. And you'll hear people talk about like, well, I've changed and now I'm this and now I'm that. And all the people that were in my life, they were just dragging me down. You know, I'm getting rid of them and life is getting better. Great. But there may be people that you actually love and care about that these changes are having not the most desired effect on in terms of the relationship. So it's just one thing to, to be aware of
0: yeah that's interesting. I appreciate you being so open hmm. um, awesome Stuart what else haven't I asked you that you'd like to share
1: um no I think I think I think we got it all Josh I think that just the harm reduction I just want to make sure everybody knows don't don't listen to this and run out and, and get get mushrooms from some stranger and and think you're gonna change your mind you know what I mean make it all very deliberate and, and really work on harm reduction uh, stay legal stay safe and uh and good luck with your journey
0: awesome well uh Stuart, thanks so much and um i guess your website i don't know if you have any shows coming up um or anything that's been booked but where can people find you online
1: it's a uh, stoned and i've got uh, two shows coming up one is private so you can't go mm. um the other one is probably going to be in april in tempe arizona
0: cool Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed reading the book, talking to you, uh, and I hope to continue our conversation at some point in the future.
1: Likewise, Josh. Thank you for everything you do. It's really, really important.